Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Uh, If you enjoy this podcast, please help others find us by reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. The more reviews we get, the higher we rise, and the more likely it is that people looking for information on college admissions uh, will find us. So please do that. Uh, Today, we are focusing on answering your questions. But before we get to that, we are going to talk about interviews. And who better to have as a guest than my colleague, Elise Krantz. Hi, Elise. Hey, Beth. Hi. And uh, I do want our listeners to know that today is your birthday. So of all of the things you could have chosen to do on this day, uh, you're choosing to spend at least part of it with us. So thank you for that. Always a pleasure. Thank you. All right. So why is it so perfect that Elise is here? Well, she's a former admissions officer at Barnard and Bennington Colleges. But aside from that, she also was an alumni interviewer at Dartmouth And she managed the alumni interview process at Barnard, which involved training the interviewers and assigning interviews. Uh, And then for good measure, she also conducts dozens of mock interviews each year here at College Coach. So if ever there was one person I might turn to on the team as an expert in the college interview process, Elise, I think you win the title. I, I'm happy to hold it. It's Our, common applications and, and interview skills. Like, that's my thing. Yep. These are, these are good things to be your thing. Um, all right. Well, why don't we start with um, a question that I get a lot, which is, you know, do colleges still interview students? How common is this? So, COVID aside, yes, many colleges are still interviewing students Um, due to pandemic restrictions. A lot of colleges have pivoted mostly to Zoom interviews if they are still conducting them. But you'll still find that the colleges that have been offering them in recent years generally are still doing it. Um, It varies, though, on the types of schools. So you'll find generally that very large public universities are not necessarily going to offer interviews. Um, There may be exceptions, of course. Uh, Very common in the interview landscape, you'll find smaller liberal arts colleges. They tend to do it a lot. Um, And some of your, not all, but a good handful of the more selective colleges, both small and medium-sized, will offer interviews. Okay, great. So how, let's start with how do you find out if the schools on your list are interviewing? So, you can go to the website. That would be the easiest place on the admissions site. Um, on the usually the first year application information, you'll see or not see information about an yeah. interview listed there. Sometimes you have to do a little digging. Sometimes I might just do a good old fashioned internet search and I'll say, you know, Boston University admissions interview and see if anything yes. pops up. Um, and sometimes students have to be proactive. They have to actually request the interview in order to be contacted by the school. At other institutions, simply applying to the school triggers that process and they will automatically be contacted. So you do want to do your research ahead of time to see if you need to make that first step to request the interview. And actually, this takes me to a good point that I want to bring up, especially because you were an alumni interviewer at Dartmouth. I was an alumni interviewer at Cornell. Um, The process when it's alumni interviews and this is something that a lot of the most selective schools use. 
Um, there are some nuances to that. Can you talk us through a little bit of that piece around how you get one of those interviews? Does everyone get an interview? What does it mean if you don't get an interview? So there are different types of interviews. Uh, the on-campus interview, if those are offered at the schools that students are looking at, they tend to be given by admissions officers who work there or by seniors at the college who have been trained to give interviews. If it's not on campus, it's likely going to be offered by an alumna or alumnus of the institution. Um, These are volunteers, graduates of the school who love their alma mater. They love being able to talk to prospective students. They have been trained um, technically by the admissions office. Some better than others. (laughs) They're supposed to go through a training process so they know what to ask, what not to ask. And for most, you know, whether it's on campus or off campus, most colleges will tell you they are weighted equally. They're, they're, um, you know, it's just going to be a positive addition to your application. If you don't get asked for an alumni interview, usually it's simply because they didn't have enough volunteers to offer you. And it's not, it's not seen as a negative if you were not offered one in the first place. Right, which I think leads to a lot of agita for students, especially if you're at a particular high school where a lot of students are applying. Um, I can think of schools where maybe we might have 50 applicants to Penn in a given year from one high school, and then maybe half the kids would be offered interviews, and they would all automatically assume that that was the only half we were considering. And then decisions would come out, and maybe a couple of people who didn't interview would get offered and spots and a couple of people who did would get offered spots. And I know it threw everyone into a tizzy. It's truly luck of the draw at many of these schools. And if you don't get an interview, it is not a reflection typically of their interest in you as an applicant or not. So, For sure. Yep. All right. So that's an important point. And also important is that at the IVs and the highly selectives, they typically do not interview at all on campus. There is not usually an opportunity for you to talk to an admissions officer in an interview setting. Uh, all right. Here's a big one. And this is who should interview? And more to the point, is there anyone who should not interview? Sometimes I meet a student um it's like a, a one, you know, one-on-one session, a counseling call. And I know instinctively you would be an amazing candidate to interview. Yes. You're energetic. You show passion and enthusiasm for what you discuss. Those, you know, it's sort of like having a theater background. Like you're on stage, you have presence. Um, obviously students who feel comfortable speaking with adults who, um, who have that, that, that excitement for, for school and learning and want to share that those for sure would be great. And those students should look for interview opportunities. Um, Colleges will will generally say that it's very hard to have a negative interview that will truly hurt your application. So even a student who maybe isn't super um, outgoing or a great talker, but is simply, you know, just a good old, you know, typical student who who wants to demonstrate interest, that's not going to hurt you by any stretch. Um, there are students, of course, who have severe anxiety, who who get so nervous about the thought of, of having an interview might really uh, negatively impact their application because they would get so flustered, they couldn't represent themselves well. So maybe for those students, I would say, maybe hold off if you can and and try to avoid those those opportunities. But for most students, it, it's it's a positive in their application. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And, and where even if you're not 
setting the world on fire in the interview, like one of those students you talk about who has presence. The fact is that they understand they're talking to teenagers and teenagers have a wide variety of ability to connect with adults. And I do believe and have seen people take that into consideration. So I would agree that unless it's extreme, it seems to me like if you can interview, you should. Mm-hmm. Um, what what kinds of questions are interviewers typically going to ask, right? It's all well and good for us to say, it's just going to be a positive addition to your application. But, you know, if you, if you have no idea what to expect, it might be hard to imagine how that could be. So maybe talk us through some of the types of questions that interviewers ask. Sure. So the questions that I asked at Barnard and when I was an alumni interviewer for Dartmouth are pretty similar. They both, and I think this is going to be across the board for any type of school, first and foremost, they want to know about your interests academically. They want to know how what you're motivated by. Um, are you intellectually curious? What have you enjoyed in high school? And what are you looking forward to studying in college? So right. that's like the academics. For sure, they're going to ask you about that. Um, they'll also ask about your extracurricular commitments, whether it's in school and your community, just your personal motivation um, mm-hmm. in getting involved and the kind of impact you've had both in high school and the impact you would like to have in college. You'll notice a theme here. It's not just what yes. you've done, but what you hope to bring to your future school. Um, this, the, the next category is, is a little more nuanced. It's, it's more, they're, they're trying to figure out your character. They're trying to figure out personality. They're, they're wondering, is this student going to be a good fit? Are they the sort of student that we can see in our classrooms who would be a good roommate? Just what sort of person are you in general? Right. And the last question, um, depending on the school, sometimes they'll come right out and say, why are you interested in us? Yes. At Dartmouth, we didn't ask that. At Barnard, we asked that. It was important to us. Um, so I would certainly be prepared for that type of match with the institution type question. Yeah, and I um, I know that quite a few alumni interviewers tend to ask that question, whether they were supposed to or they weren't. Um, and so I do always want my students to be prepared for that. I think also um, you might get the question around what other schools are you considering, which we would say up, down, sideways, backwards, forwards. Please do not ask this question to our alumni interviews. And that still I would get interview reports saying, he loves Penn and is also considering and just a litany of other schools. And I am thinking the only way that this interviewer knows this is because he asked the student this question. So any advice around answering that question if it comes up? We hope it doesn't, but it might. So it's it's an unfair question. Yes. You have to answer it politely. I would generally say Offer a few schools, if you can, that are in the peer range, sort of similar selectivity. Um, And if there are a few schools that are maybe more, you know, one or two schools that are more selective and maybe one or two that are a little less selective, just so they can get a sense that, um, you know, just the over, you don't give them every school on your list. But I think it's, um, you, you don't want it to seem like, oh, you're my safety or you're my absolute reach. That's why trying to give them Putting it in context in a way, I guess, for your list would, would be the best way, I think, to answer that. Yeah, and I, and I even have told students, you don't necessarily have, it is difficult to sit there and say, I'd rather not say, that feels not ideal, right? But maybe what you could say is, I'm still, and also tough to say you're still finalizing your list if you're interviewing in February of your senior year, but I do think it's fair to say, 
you know, I have a handful of schools. This is, I, I really like this school. Um, I'm also applying to A and B and leave it at that, right? I don't even know if you need to give a longer yeah, list yeah, than, than yeah. a couple. Um, if you're feeling really confident, you could say, you're not supposed to ask me that question, but you probably shouldn't say that. So. <laughs> Never mind. Um, well, all right. All of this really great information. What is your advice to students in terms of preparing for these interviews? So there's a few, aside from preparing, you know, just asking yourself those questions of what do I want to study? How do I want to get involved? Like knowing those are typical questions, certainly, you know, prepare to answer those. There are a few other sort of tricky questions that are good to practice. Um, The tell me about yourself question. Sometimes interviewers start with this and it's such a doozy, but you have to be ready just to give them a nice little summary overview of who you are. Um, Sometimes interviewers will ask at the end, what questions do you have for me? You need to have at least one or two good questions. Yes. For that. And it's not one of those, how many books are in your library? Like take advantage of the fact that this is either an admissions officer, a current student or an alum of the school to ask them about their experience, what they're looking for. Like this is a great you know, chance to connect. Um, and the last bit of advice I would say is you need to research the school so thoroughly in advance, because if you're interviewing for a school, maybe that's not your top choice. They're going to know that when you show up and you can't talk about why you like their biology program right. in particular, right? Or what what clubs you would like to take advantage of if you haven't done that research. So you definitely want to dig into that school a little bit to see what what's a good fit for you. Right. And actually, to that point, one of the things I tell my students is ideally, you're not going to interview in the first visit. And that's tricky, right? Because what if you have one trip to go across the country and you're visiting a school where they do offer on-campus interviews and it's the first time you're setting foot on campus, you don't even know if you're going to like the school, but that's what the internet is for, people. You know, you do your research, you show up knowing what you like. Now, if you show up and you don't love the school and you know you're not going to apply, well, then now you have a practice interview and there's nothing riding on it. But if you love it, you want to feel really good that you had done your research so that now you can speak intelligently about what you like about the school. And it's never a bad thing to say, I've seen you from afar. I've done some research. This seemed great, but I'm not, I'm taking the tour after this interview. It's fine to be upfront about that, right? Um, but if you possibly can interview on a day that is not your first time you've ever seen the school, I think that can be useful if it's possible. Absolutely. Any other last words of advice, Elise, before we wrap up this segment? I know it's hard to say be yourself and relax, (laughs) but the best, I mean, practice, you know, helps, you know, talking to to a mirror, talking with a parent or a friend or a sibling, um, but they, they know you're a teenager. They know you're nervous. So just try to enjoy yourself. And, and, you know, if you need a water or, you know, a coffee next to you, it's okay to have that prop, something to hold, something to sip and take a breath. Um, it's And if you mess up, if you mess up on an answer and you realize, why did I say that? It's okay to say, you know what? Can, can we start that over? It's normal. Yes. Like, it's a conversation. Like, these are human beings. They, they're doing this because they love, they love chatting with students. So it's it's okay if little mistakes happen. Just, just correct them. It's okay. Exactly. I mean, this is not like we're taping this and we're going to broadcast it or anything. We even get do-overs here, which you don't necessarily know about. And you can 
absolutely ask for one in an interview. I think that's really good advice. Elise, thank you so much for joining today and uh, sharing all the insight you have uh, from years of interviewing students. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks. Absolutely. All right. We're going to take a really quick break. And when we come back, we are going to be answering all of your questions. So why would you possibly want to go away? what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone, to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We are answering your questions for the remainder of today's podcast. And joining me, as she so frequently does for this, is Shannon Vasconcelos. Uh, Hi, Shannon. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for joining us. And for anyone who is new to the podcast, Shannon works here at College Coach, but is also a former financial aid officer at both Tufts and BU. Shannon, we are going to start with the one and only finance question we have this week, because apparently our listeners are all set. They've got it all figured out. They're regular listeners. They know it by now. (laughs) They've got it nailed. All right. This comes to us from Kishore, who asks, if we cannot afford a college's full tuition and are hoping for financial aid or merit aid, are we compromising ourselves by applying in the early decision pool? Do students who apply early decision get awarded financial and or merit aid? Yeah, so students who apply early decision can definitely get financial aid and scholarships. You're not in any way, you know, giving up that right when you apply early decision. Uh, I will say it was sort of long a question in my mind of will you get as much in scholarships as you might have if you applied regular decision? You know, logically, you can imagine um, a school not wanting to award so much in scholarships to early decision students because those students have already committed to enrolling at the school, you know, regardless of if they're offered scholarships. So, you know, kind of what's the incentive for the school? 
Um, I have had that question in the past, but I would say after speaking with all of our colleagues here at Bright Horizons College Coach, um, who have all you know worked at dozens and dozens of colleges collectively, um, speaking with, with all of our colleagues, I have found very little evidence of colleges or purposefully shortchanging students who apply ED. A few isolated incidents, yes, uh, but for the most part, all of us um, who have worked at colleges who have an ED process um, have experienced that we would award students the same kind of scholarships and financial aid, whether they applied early or regular. Um, you know, and in trying to figure out, you know, well, why that would be, where's the incentive? You know, when you, when you do kind of think a little deeper, first of all, students can pull out of an early decision contract if the finances make it impossible to attend. So right. if, if a college decided to really lowball ED students, they would get tons of students pulling out of their contracts. Also, you know, word would get out <laughs> and a school would not last very long with, you know, an ED process um, once people figured out that they weren't getting as much financial aid. Um, so I think that uh, with limited exceptions, colleges are generally going to have comparable awards, whether you apply ED or regular decision. Now, having said all of that, right. <laughs> I do definitely think you are making a financial compromise when you apply early decision, you know, even if that particular school gives you the same offer that they would have if you had applied later, um, what you are giving up is the ability to compare offers from other schools and also related, potentially go back and negotiate for even right. higher offers. So you committed to that early decision school, um, no matter what they give you. Uh, again, even if they give you the same as they would have, you don't get to see what schools. B, C, D, and E would have offered you. Right. Uh, and they might have been much more generous offers. You just don't get to know that when you apply early decision. Um, so I think it's a very serious decision to make um, for financial reasons, among other reasons, but you are really giving up a lot. So you really have to be very sure about that early decision school that it is your first choice school. I would definitely do the net price calculator on the school's website that will estimate financial aid for you. It will estimate always need-based financial aid, may or may not estimate merit scholarships. So they're not perfect tools, but they're the best tools you have to see in advance what a college will cost you. So if you're thinking of applying early decision, do the net price calculator. You really have to be comfortable with the number that it shows you. You have to be willing to pay that price, uh, even if another school offered you more money. I think that's the big if, that's what you don't get to know. Um, so I don't think, you know, you're, you will be considered for financial aid and scholarships, but the missing piece is you don't get to see the offers from all the other schools. So if you, if the finances matter to you, you want to be able to compare offers, early decision is not the right process for you. Right. And, and the only thing I would say too, is that often you want to use early decision, decision strategically and if you're using it to make a school that is slightly out of reach, a little bit more within reach, or a school that is a pretty solid match, but absolutely no guarantees, the reality is that if, this, if those schools are offering merit money, they're probably not offering them to you in early decision anyway, because they're reserving that money to get the very best applicants that they're going to yes. get, right? And then maybe you're applying early decision to a school that you just love, and maybe it's a safety 
And then I'm just thinking about a, the, some of the schools we saw this year coming back to students two and three times with bigger offers of merit money. And you would miss out on that if you had committed to them early decision, right? right? So it's a bit of a balancing act. And early decision makes sense in some situations, but generally benefits the school more than the student. And so, but again, we could do a whole show on early decision and using it strategically. And perhaps we should. Yeah. Today is not that day. (laughs) Okay, so the next question came in from Christine through our Facebook page. So folks, feel free if you have questions, you can just shoot us a message on Facebook. Uh, But she's asking, uh, sort of what's going on this year? Why are selective schools so full or over-enrolled? Is it double deposits? Is it test optional displacing? Also, will... um, uh, internationals, I'm sure international students there cause wait list movement before August. Thank you. Right. Okay. Lots of questions here. Yeah. I think the first thing I would say as a baseline is that most selective schools are full after they submit, they send out their offers and they come back. Um, they do generally a very good job of enrollment management. They know how many offers they need to send out to enroll their class. And so to me, it is not a new thing that they're full. To be over-enrolled, I think what you're seeing there is a little bit of hedging because some of the enrollment management tools that they've used over the years are a little bit out the window when you eliminate both test scores and you factor in COVID and you really, it leads to a lot of unpredictability. And so what we might have seen this year is that for schools that have early decision, they filled a bigger portion of their class in early decision and then got a little antsy in regular decision and maybe admitted a few more students than they normally would because they just weren't sure. And then were surprised when those students accepted the offer. I, are some people double depositing? Sure. But the fact that we still aren't seeing huge movement and lets me leads me to believe that wasn't a big thing. I don't think it's ever a big thing. Yeah. Um, I think test optional made things a little bit less predictable this year, but I, I don't, you know, these, uh, these applicant pools grew significantly. The thing I always say is just because more people apply doesn't mean that more qualified people applied, right? So I do believe that this year a lot more students shot their shot and, uh, you know, aimed really high, probably higher than they should have. Um, but I don't think those are the kids that got in. Um, so I really think it comes down to so much unpredictability the previous year that maybe they admitted a, a few more students than they thought they would. So I also think, especially if a school is un, in, over-enrolled, that they are praying for summer melt, which is what you call it when students ultimately decide they're not coming. And as could be the case with some international students, I actually do know, though, of a bunch of schools where they have put in place options for students who aren't able to get visas so they could defer for the year or they could continue to study online. Let's not forget, right, all of these schools have done this now, so they know how to... You know, they know how to make that available. And so um, I can think of at least one school where they've been very clear that their goal is not to lose those international students. And so if they can't get visas, their hope is that they will take advantage of um, this, you know, online option until they are able to get visas and join them on campus. So, 
you know, I don't think there's anything nefarious going on. I actually don't think that this year is so different from previous years, despite the increased application numbers. Um, the one big change is just that things were a little bit under unpredictable. But the the very at the selective level, those schools are always full. Right, and I'm I'm trying to uh, you know read behind between the lines of Christine's question here, and I'm wondering if. She has a student who is on a wait list yes. at a very selective school, and, and she's wondering what the chances are of right. getting in off of that wait list. And I would say not good. No, I, yeah, I would say at this point, so this podcast is going to air in on July 8th. I would say that most wait list activity typically is done by mid to late June, and that's late because yeah. what happens is students have committed to other schools. They start to get excited about those other schools. If you're going to need kids from your wait list, you typically want to pull them early and not late because the later you wait, the less likely those students are to come. And, you know, to wait list activity in August is really, really limited, yeah. rare. I, if, yeah, I would say, unfortunately, every week that goes by makes it that much less likely that anything is going to happen. Some schools will very nicely reach out to you and say, hey, we've closed our wait list. Thank you so much for your interest and let you go, which I really like. Yeah. Other schools aren't so great about that, which I really don't like. Um, I do know some schools will actually reach out to a select handful of students who are on the wait list and ask them if they would like to remain on the wait list and then cut everybody else loose so that they have a core group that really are sort of like gung-ho, yep, tell me on August 15th, tell me on August 19th, I will turn around the car if I am heading to one <laughs> school and come to you. Um, you know, again, pretty rare, uh, but if the student has heard nothing, if there's been no communication from the school, I would say it's pretty unlikely at this point. Uh, and this question I think is actually from uh, Kishore, our, our friend who asked the, the question oh, yeah. about the financial um, ramifications of applying early decision, uh, related admissions question, if my son sends his application early to a college, but doesn't actually choose the early decision option, does not check that box, will his application be viewed or will it be set aside until much later to be viewed along with the other regular decision applications? Uh, yes, that's exactly what's going to happen. It's going to be set aside. So, um, because if you, it, when you submit your application is typically less important than which application uh, deadline you choose. And if you apply early decision, because there is a, um, commitment there, you, the student must sign that they acknowledge the commitment, right. the parent must sign it, the school counselor must sign it. So it is an active process to place yourself in the early decision applicant pool. Similarly, with early action, there's no commitment involved, but you have to select the early act, the early action um, pool to be placed into that and read at that time. Otherwise, the schools are focusing early on the early decision, early action applicants or the priority decision applicants, and then they leave the rest of the applications until after the regular decision deadline. So in short, it gets you nothing to submit your application super early, especially if that time might have been used to improve the application. Um, there's no harm in submitting it early. If you want to, it'll just go into a holding pattern and it will be brought out when it's regular decision. But most students that I know are not 
submitting their very best work necessarily when they submit it really early. So what I sometimes find is that families are super focused on the idea that, oh, we're going to get the application in really early and that's going to show how interested we are. All it's really going to do is if you're not selecting a special early application process, all it's doing is it's going to go and sit and gather dust until it's time, right? There are no assumptions made that you're super interested because you submitted it early. So my advice is get it in a week or two before the deadline because that way you avoid any tech issues that you might run into where you've got a lot of students trying to press submit on the same day, but getting it in months early I, there's there's no benefit to that. So I'm not sure why you would do it. Gotcha. Uh, next question comes in from Jennifer. My daughter will be applying to many highly selective schools. She takes the highest level of all five core classes available each year. She enjoys science. And in addition to taking AP physics junior year, she took AP chemistry and honors engineering. However, she is likely going to major in humanities in college, not science. Is it a problem if she takes AP biology and honors organic chemistry senior year? She will be taking an honors Holocaust class and the other core classes, but no other humanities as she's not interested in what her school offers. Let's define what a problem is, right? A problem is if you are not taking all five major subjects all four years. So because you said she is, I'm going to assume that that second science isn't replacing something else, right? So you said she's going to take an honors Holocaust. What I would say is this, if she's planning to apply as a humanities major, that's one thing. If she's planning to go undecided, but thinks she will focus in humanities in college, that's another entirely. And then the third thing I would say is that one of the things about high school that's not so exciting is that you're not always interested in the school classes that you're taking. So if she's going to apply as a humanities major, so maybe she's going to apply as a history major or an English major or sociology or psychology, um, it might not be a bad idea to have a, you know, a, a humanities class or, and what are we defining as humanities? I would say all those things I just mentioned. So if she's taking English, well, there's one in the humanities. She's doing honors Holocaust. That's a social science or a history. So that's the other. If she's doing her foreign language, in theory, that's kind of humanities, mm-hmm. sort of, but not entirely. Um, she's taking math. She's going to do two sciences. You know, is the honors Holocaust? I don't know if she's done an AP level history class. Um, I don't know if she is doing, you know, if she's done anything else related to that, but I'm not sure that the argument that she's not interested is necessarily the best bet, right? When you apply as a specific major to a college, what you're doing is you're throwing extra emphasis on your preparation in that area. So if you are doubling up two years in a row on science, and then you apply and you want to be a history major, and they look at your your record, and they realize that you opted for a semester long class in senior year, when you there were two or three other full year length classes, or even an AP level class that you could have taken, and you didn't, there's probably going to feel, it's going to feel like a disconnect. It might actually feel like your daughter really wants science, but instead is, um, you know, focusing on the humanities because maybe it is easier to get in, she thinks, right? So you just don't want to create, 
So at the start, I said, it's not a problem if you're doing all five subject areas, and it isn't. What is a problem is if you um, you create a disconnect between what you want to study and what the college, what it looks like your preparation is and what the college might think you want to study. So I might really strongly think about can you do, if the Honors Holocaust is a full year class and she's already got an AP level history, then maybe that's a non, no big deal, not a problem. If she's doing only one semester in the social sciences, including history, yeah, maybe you want to rethink that piece. So not an easy, you know, yes never or no, is. but <laughs> never is exactly. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to answer more questions I don't think we have any more for you, unfortunately, Shannon. So it's going to be me again. All right. So assuming you still want to hear me talk, uh, don't go away. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. College admissions can be stressful. But Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, welcome back, everybody. We are answering your listener questions as we do at least once uh, every four weeks on the podcast. Shannon Vasconcelos is here. Shannon, you have more questions for me. Let's go. I sure do. This one comes in from Lisa, and Lisa asks, Several times I've heard you mention, I think it's 16 qualities that high school counselors rank students in as they submit letters of recommendation for college admissions. Could you say what those 16 qualities are? I can't find it on the internet and no one seems to know about this. It's very mysterious, but it seems like it would be hugely helpful to know. Sure. Um, Lisa, I will be honest with you. I saw this question and I thought... 
I have never talked about the 16 qualities. <laughs> Literally, I had no idea what you're talking about. Uh, it is possible, absolutely, that one of my other hosts or a guest had talked, mentioned this before, but um, I very quickly realized that what you were talking about is the teacher recommendation form for the common application. So first thing I'm going to do is just hold this up. You're probably not going to be able to see it all that well, but it's the teacher evaluation form for the common application. If you Google, I will tell you exactly what I Googled to get there, common app recommendation form, um, you will, it will pop up and there'll be something that says something like just there also a PDF. And if you click on that, you will see PDF versions of all the forms uh, that can accompany the common app. So you can Print this out yourself and see it for yourself. But here's what I will tell you. On this evaluation form, they are, um, they ask for the teacher's information. They ask how long they've known the student in, one co- in what context. Um, they ask what grade level they taught them in. Uh, and they ask for the courses that they taught the student in. And then there is this grid right here. Um, and the grid includes 15 qualities with the 16th being an overall rating, right? So they're asking the teachers to grid in their responses. So on the following qualities, academic achievement, intellectual promise, quality of writing, creative original thought, productive class discussion, respect accorded by faculty. I misread that one originally and I thought to faculty, like, oh, they're looking for a respectful student, but no, respect accorded by faculty. So what do, what is your sense of how faculty um, perceive this student? Disciplined work habits, maturity, motivation, leadership, integrity, reaction to setbacks, concern for others, self-confidence, initiative, and independence, same line, and then that overall. And the rankings that they have to choose from are no basis. So if the teacher really has no idea about any of these, they can check no basis. And then the other rankings are below average, average, good, which in parentheses is above average, very good, which in parentheses is well above average, excellent, which is top 10%, outstanding, which is top 5%, and one of the top few I've encountered, which is top 1%. Here's what I can tell you in talking to my colleagues about what we saw most commonly on the uh, admission side when we were reading these teacher recommendations. First of all, more teachers than not will send in a written evaluation. So this form is really nice and maybe they fill it out and maybe they don't. So it wasn't uncommon when I was at Penn for a student to... Um, for a teacher to submit a form that had checkboxes and put a stamp on it that said C letter of recommendation or just staple it to that or um, simply ignore the form for the most part and really just send in a letter of recommendation. But others, plenty of other teachers will fill out the form and also do a letter of recommendation. And there probably are schools where teachers would maybe just fill out the form and that would be it. So you're gonna work with whatever the teacher provides What I do remember and what I did hear from my colleagues is that when there was a written evaluation, they paid much more attention to that than they did to the checkboxes. What sometimes you might see is that um, maybe there'd be something that stood out to you, like 
for the most part, the student was excellent, top 10% or very good, but then on one or two things, they might be one of the top few, and that would catch your eye. Um, the reverse, of course, could also catch your eye, right, where you're seeing mostly great scores, and then maybe there were a couple where it was not great, and that might give you pause to, to think about it. But to me, the qualities that they're talking about are really the qualities that you, there's nothing hidden in my mind there about what they're looking for. Like, oh, I never knew they wanted to know if this student, um, you know, pressed their jeans for class, right? Or, um, I don't know, is a really great athlete or contributes to the school community in an impactful way, right? That's not what they're asking about. They're really asking about who is the student who shows up in your class every day or every time the class meets? And what are they bringing to that classroom environment? That's at the core of these 15 attributes, and it's not something that I would get too worked up about. Um, this is just what the colleges want to know. They want to know what kind of a student are we getting in the classroom, and that's the goal of these questions. Perfect. Makes sense. Okay. Uh, the next question comes in from Kathy, and she asks, my son is an editor on his school newspaper, but the paper is part of a class, a journalism class, should he list the editor position in the activities section of the Common App since it's part of a class? How would you recommend highlighting his leadership role on the paper? Um, This is a really good question, and I would expand this out because there are other things that students do that end up being kind of a hybrid, right? They are banned is sometimes a class. Chorus is sometimes a class. Uh, Drama is sometimes a class. But then the student is also playing in the marching band uh, for football games on Friday nights during the season, or you're singing in the chorus um, at different events around town, or you are putting the newspaper together and the work is done not only in class, but also done outside of class. So the first thing for me that determines whether it is an extracurricular activity in addition to a class is what's done outside of the class. If every bit of work is done in the class, that's a little bit trickier, but my guess is that at least some of the work, especially when you're an editor, is going to be done outside of class and on your own time. And that is when, in my mind, it becomes an extracurricular activity. What I would not do is I would not lump in the class time that you're putting towards the extracurricular to the hours per week and weeks per year that you're recording, right? Because that's already being counted as class time. So it would be everything above and beyond the class is what I would count for um, the extracurricular. So if you have band and you have a band class once a day that meets for 45 minutes, I would not include that 45 minutes every day. But if in addition to that, you also practice at home for an hour and then you also have marching band practice and then you're also performing at different games, all of that time would be part of your extracurricular profile. And similarly, leadership would fit in well there, right? So if he is an editor of a section or something like that on the newspaper, um, again, you're going to capture newspaper, the time he spends that is outside of class, and that would be the place to note that he is section editor or editor-in-chief or whatever it is. So um, so yeah, so that's how I would handle those extracurriculars that are a little bit more hybrid in nature. 
Uh, and the next one, maybe a little bit of a question for both of us. Uh, it says, I know that schools pretend to be need blind, but in practice, it can't possibly be true with the cost of college. Can it? <laughs> I love this. Like, I will, t- I'll be as blunt as I can be. Colleges are really not out there trying to lie to you. I, I, I get that people find it hard to believe, but I really, I, I can't be clear. Maybe they're not always being as clear as you would like them to be, or maybe you feel that what happens doesn't match what you what they're saying because you don't understand how the end result came to be. But I really, I've been doing this work for almost 20 years now, um, both working at a university and now working in a place where I am working with students who are dealing with hundreds, if not thousands of universities. And I just simply not, it's not true. They're not lying. (laughs) So all of this to say, they're not pretending to be need blind. The reason they can be need blind is because they have enough money to do so. So the reason that not all colleges are need blind is because they don't have enough money to do so. It's pretty straightforward, right? Right. (laughs) Um, And what need blind means is that whether or not you can afford to pay or whether or not you need financial aid has zero bearing on the decision-making process when you are deciding who to admit. So when I was working at Penn, literally never came up once in the committee room if a student could afford to pay or not or if they needed financial aid or not. That was no part of our decision-making process. Unless you were an international student and Penn is very upfront that they are need blind for everyone except for international students. And the reason for that is because there was a limited budget to fund financial aid for international students. And Penn is also committed to meeting 100% of demonstrated need, which most schools that practice need blind admissions are. And what, so for them, they weren't sure they could offer Uh, financial aid, the amount of financial aid that every international student they accepted needed. So they had to balance those two budgets. Um, Shannon, I I don't know what you want to add here as someone who was on the finance side of this. And I'll say that there's one more category of school um, among the need blind schools. There's the very, very rich schools who just have the money and it's not a concern that you spoke about. Mm -hmm. There are also need blind schools who are need blind and do not commit to meeting 100% financial needs. So actually, when I worked at Boston University, BU at that time fell into that category. It does not anymore. It now does commit as of, uh, I think, uh, maybe two years ago. Yeah, one or two years ago, they started meeting full financial need. But when I worked there, they did not. So we did not look at a family's ability to pay in our admissions process. We were truly need blind, but the catch was when, it, when your file came over from admi- admissions accepted you, you came over to us in financial aid. We didn't sort of care if you needed money or not because we weren't necessarily going to give it to you. We would right. accept you and then say, you can figure out how to pay. Right. <laughs> so that, that's the other Schools who are need blind are either very rich and can meet everyone's full needs, so it's not really a concern, or they're not going to meet people's full needs. So it's not a concern because they basically make it the family's (laughs) concern. They'll accept you and then you can figure out 
how to pay. Uh, and in contrast to that, the other school I worked at, Tufts University, was a need-aware school because, like you were talking about with international students at Penn, we did commit to meeting everyone's full need. Mm -hmm. And we made the decision that if we could not um, meet your full need, maybe we would not accept you. Um, so if a school, there's the very, very rich schools who aren't worried about it. If a school does not, is not very rich, does not have the money to meet everyone's full need, they have to just kind of go one or two paths. <laughs> you know, right. we'll either be need aware, look at it in our admissions process and only accept the number of students with the amount of need we can fulfill, or we're going to go the other way. We're not going to look at it in the admissions process, um, but we're just going to not uh, meet your need and you're going to have to figure out how to pay. So if a school is not very rich, they have to go one of those two ways. But I would totally agree with you, Beth, in terms of schools are not lying. Right. <laughs> so that if a school says they they are need blind, they, they truly are. Uh, I think a lot of the suspicion around that is because people are looking for a reason. Why did my kid yes. not get into this school? My you know, is it's usually a very selective school, and my kid gets great grades and has great test scores. They seem are seemingly doing everything right, and they didn't get in. What could possibly the reason? Oh, it must be because we needed money. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And the other thing is, um, and we're almost here at the end of our time, but um, the other thing that can happen too is that even at the schools where they are need aware. Um, what we hear from our colleagues who worked at Need Aware Schools, and you were there, but not in the necessarily in the admissions room, is that it really came down to like a handful of students who were very much on the bubble, um, and so it was. There were many students who needed a lot of aid, who they would happily admit, and then there would, it, you know, there would be literally a handful at the end of the process where they would say, "Ugh." We just don't have enough money to fund this student, so we are not going to admit them. And I also think that the the thought that that's your student is all out of proportion with the amount of time, with the number of times it actually is that that happened to your student, right? It's correct. It's still pretty limited. So yeah, agreed. All right. Well, Shannon, as always, thank you so much for joining today. I really appreciate it. Oh, you are so welcome. My pleasure. Um, when I am doing these Q and A's with someone other than Shannon, I'm always a little thrown because we always do these together. So it's fun. Um, all right, really quickly, a few things. Next week, Sally is hosting, um, and we're actually welcoming a public school counselor, um, who has insight into the impact of the pandemic on their students. Um, we thought that would be interesting to hear. And then we're also going to be talking about grants and scholarships which I know many of you are interested in. I'll put in another plug to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more we get, the easier it is for others to find us. Um, if you have questions, uh, you, as you can see, Shannon and I had a lot today, although we could have answered more. Uh, so send them to us. We can, we'll take them via Facebook. We'll take them via Instagram at collegecoachbh. Um, you could send them to me on Instagram at ElizabethHeaton92. You could email them to us, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. You can tweet them at us. Uh, you can send them to us on LinkedIn. We have so many different ways that you can get us those questions. Um, if you are wondering, gee, I wonder if they've covered this topic on the podcast recently or in the past. 
we make write a blog about every single podcast that we do. So if you go to our blog and you search for a topic, it will pop up if we did a podcast on that. And so you'll know exactly where to go to find that um, that podcast and the subject of interest. Um, also, sign up for our blog, blog.getintocollege.com. And don't forget, we are here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.